What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. The 1990s go down in history, in my humble, unbiased opinion, as the greatest decade of cartoons. You might disagree, but I hope that you'll get them on my um, same page sooner or later. The 1990s gave way to many different television shows like the Flintstones and the Jetsons and the Rugrats and Captain Planet, but also a show that is one of the top five cartoons of all time, from my understanding, and that is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Four names, Leonardo, Raphael, Donatello, and Michelangelo go down as names that, at least in pop culture, do not remind us of the Renaissance period or some painting or some piece of architecture. But they remind us of four turtles who were transformed to be like men. They were ninjas. But you see, when when they were, at least in the context of the show, the cartoon or the movies, the purpose of their existence was to not be out in the front conquering the enemies, but to be at work in the shadows behind the scene. And as we come to the book of Ruth, I find it interesting that that just as those four individuals, Leonardo, Raphael, Michelangelo, and Donatello, were at work in the shadows, we see that God Almighty is at work in the shadows in these four chapters of the book of Ruth. And so the title of my message today is this thought, God is at work in the shadows. I believe that is the theme, that is the point of these four chapters of the book of Ruth. In fact, as you begin to study the book of Ruth, there are three common theological themes that you will discover. The first one is the sovereignty of God. That when you study chapter 1, you study chapter 2, you study chapter 3, and you study chapter 4, from the beginning of the life of of Naomi to the very ending of the genealogy in chapter 4, we see that the sovereign hand of God is at work in every single scene of every single chapter. Then the point of this book is also one word, redemption. Say that with me. Redemption. One more time, please. Redemption. The redemption of God is clearly evident in these four chapters. We talk about the kinsman redeemer, and we talk about the leveret marriage in the Old Testament, and we'll explain some of that later. But we see that the whole point of this book is to point us not from a relative redeeming a piece of property or redeeming a widow, but it is the point that God is going to step in the scene and redeem the lost humanity. Then, the third and final theological theme is more of application, but it's obedience pleases God. That is, when we are generous of our time, talents, and treasures, God is honored and pleased. When we are loyal to what we believe and the people that we love, God is honored. And when we practice charitable, benevolent kindness to others, God is pleased in our obedience. But now with that being said, I do find it interesting that that this whole book ends with a genealogy. Why? Why would this romantic love scene end with 
what seems to be a flat note with a, a genealogy. That's just not how I picture the movies on Hallmark ending with the genealogical record of those that fall in love. But I submit to you that that is the whole point of this book. The point of this book is far beyond Boaz meeting Ruth, but it's right here in these last few verses of this genealogy. Now, before we dive into the theme of my message today, I want to share with you, if we're going to really understand the book of Ruth, we really have to understand the background. And the book of Ruth was written in the time period of the Judges. And if you've ever read the several chapters of the book of Judges, then you realize that the book of Judges took place in the nation of Israel's worst time in existence. In fact, the book of Judges unleashes and unpacks the worst in humanity. And, and it begins in chapter 1, and it just begins to deteriorate as each judge comes on the scene. You have people like Gideon, you have people like Deborah, you have others like Samson, and each judge or ruler or governor that comes on the scene, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And it's, in a sense, man's darkest days. But in Ruth chapter 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says that the context here is that this came to pass in the days in which the judges ruled. So when you study the book of Ruth and you study the book of Judges, what you have to realize is this, is even in the darkest of days, God will still shine his light of truth. And that's what's going on in this book right here. And so Ruth goes back to Lot's daughters in Genesis chapter 19. And Boaz's background goes back to, to Judah, his oldest son, and, and his oldest son passing away and going down and finally being deceived by Tamar and giving birth to twins. So the whole context of the book of Ruth is man at its worst, but also God at his best. Today, the key thought I want you to walk away with is this. God is at work in the shadows of life, orchestrating everything out for his providential plan. God is at work in the shadows of life, orchestrating everything out for his providential plan. What we see here in, in the lineage of Ruth and in the lineage of Boaz is absolute horrific scenes. But what we see God doing is what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 8, that God is able to work out everything for good. So my question I want to ask today is this. How is God at work in the shadows of life? Well, I want to draw your attention to the first four chapters. And no, I'm not going to spend 50 minutes elaborating on each chapter. I'll try to run through this as fast as I can. But the first thought as we think about how is God at work in the shadows of life is this. God is at work in the shadows by caring about the details of life. God is at work in the shadows by caring about the details of life. That is literally what we see in each of these four chapters and in all the scenes. In chapter 1, if you've never read the book of Ruth, I want to encourage you to go home today or at some point this week and open up this small little book and read it. It'll take you no more than 30 minutes to read. 
And by the way, this book goes down as the greatest short story that is ever written in the history of humanity. In fact, every other great uh, short story is, is built upon the foundations of this small book. But in chapter 1, we see Elimelech and Naomi journey to Moab. And there, they enter tragedy. Chapter 1 is tragedy. In, in fact, it's one tragedy that leads to two other tragedies. You see, Naomi becomes a widow. And then her two sons pass away. And in fact, the commentators and theologians liken Naomi to the woman version of Job. And it's not that Job or Naomi experiences something so severe our minds can't fathom. It's just they experience the trials of life all at once. But in chapter 1, we see that God is able to take a tragedy and turn it into a victory. And so, in this her sorrow and grief, she tries to send her daughters-in-law away to go back to their parents to, to find a new husband, a new family. But Ruth, the Bible says, assures her that wherever she goes, I will go. And whatever God she worships will be the God that Ruth will worship. What loyalty and what hope we find in the character of Ruth. And then in chapter 2, we see that finally Naomi and Ruth, they come back at the end of chapter 1 to Bethlehem. And in chapter 2, the Bible speaks about how Naomi had some type of relative who was nearest of kin to them. And that, that he had a, a field and she sent Ruth to go to this field. And, and it just so happened that the field that she stumbles across and begins to glean is from Boaz's field. And now to understand, imagine this sanctuary is a field of barley. Imagine it's just crops in the field row after row after row. Each pew is a row. But what, would, what the Old Testament law said was on the outer edges to leave that for those who are poor, to come and to glean from. And so you have to understand in this culture, in this context, Naomi was a widow, but she also didn't have really any means of source of income. And so she was going back to this area, she was poor, and she needed, the family needed food. So they go and they, they take full advantage of those practices of the Old Testament law. And so as Ruth goes, she stumbles upon Boaz's field, and Boaz begins to ask about her and, and begins to invite her into his home and feeds her and sends her away with food. And she comes back and tells Naomi, and Naomi is full of great gratitude. In chapter 3, we see that Naomi tells Ruth, go clean up, put on a nice attire, put on your nicest smelling perfume, and go and ask Boaz to be your redeemer. But she did it in the middle of the night on the threshing floor of where they would glean and take care of those crops. In fact, in, in verses 1 through 7, Naomi instructs Ruth about those details. And in verses 8 through 13, Boaz, in fact, blesses Ruth. And, and in, a, in a weird scene, he begins to agree that he will be the kinsman redeemer. 
And then Ruth returns to Naomi and tells her the good news. But in the middle of this scene, when Boaz agrees to tell uh, uh, to Ruth about how she, he will be the redeemer, he says, now I want you to know, Ruth, there is somebody who is closer to Ken than I am. And we have to give him first rights to step in to be the redeemer. And if he does not do that, then I will be the redeemer. Now, the Leverett marriage was very weird and odd for us to think of in our context, but it goes back to really the only other recorded time of this being practiced in Scripture, that is, is Genesis chapter 38 and in the book of Ruth. And all it simply meant is, imagine I have a brother, and my brother passed away and left his wife to live. Then I were to step in and, and redeem any of the land that they would own, and then step in and bring her in to be my wife to give offspring to where they, we could produce a son to honor the name of the deceased. That's, in a nutshell, what the Leverett marriage was. Very weird and odd for our minds in this modern age to think of, but that was the Old Testament command back in Deuteronomy and back in Leviticus. And so Boaz agrees to this, except under one stipulation, that the other one that's closer related does not move forward. So in chapter 4, we see that this redeemer who is closer in, in relation comes on the scene and, and Boaz tells him the whole situation, tells him first about the property and says, all right, I'll do it. I, I'll redeem the property and we'll take over. But then he says, in addition to the property you have to redeem, you also have to redeem Ruth. And he, for some reasons, most likely it's because the son would inherit the land and instead of him. And we don't know. We're just only speculating of the reasons why. But it was too much for him to handle. So he backs out of that deal. And that is when Boaz steps on the scene to agree to be this kinsman redeemer. But I do find it interesting. In, our, in fact, really years ago, if you were going to make an agreement, you had a handshake agreement. Now what you have to have is a detailed contract of every, everything, and you have to sign and date it. But in that culture, you know what they did? They took off their shoes. <laughs> Could you imagine going to buy a house and taking off your shoe to the owner and said, Hey, I'm agreeing to buy your house. How weird and how far-fetched compared to our modern society. But I share this whole summarization of the book of Ruth to share with you this, that God was sovereignly at work in the shadows because he is concerned about the details of our lives. And if God was so concerned about sending Elimelech and Naomi to Moab so that their son could meet Ruth, and so that Ruth could become a daughter-in-law to go back to Bethlehem to go stumble across this field that was happened to be Boaz's so that they could come together and be married and have a son named Obed. My friend, God doesn't make mistakes. I, it doesn't matter necessarily what you're going through in your life. Maybe you're going through a valley. Maybe you're going through a mountaintop. I want, you, I want to assure you this time that God is at work even though you can't see him. Even though you can't feel him at work or see him at work, God is at work and he will take any tragedy or any triumph and orchestrate it for his providential plan. God is at work in the shadows by caring about the details of life. He cares about the details of Ruth and, and Boaz and and the descendants, but he also cares about your life. 
And we see that, that Boaz and Ruth come together and they have a child. They name him Obed and Naomi is sore pleased. She is very pleased. And then that brings us to the text that we read. Why? Why? This makes no sense to share all this romantic short story novel kind of thing and then to end it with, with these ten generations. Why? Why, why, why is the question we should ask. But before we kind of answer that, how is God at work in the shadows? Well, secondly today, from our genealogy, verses 18 through 22 of chapter 4, God is at work in the shadows. Now, here's the reason why it's here. By affirming David's right to be king. God is at work in the shadows by affirming David's right to be king. You see, most likely the reason why this genealogy is located at the very end is because the writer here, most likely Samuel, we don't really know who's writing yours, but most likely the narrator is, is leading up to this to emphasize here that David has the right to be king because it is very possible while he was on the throne in Israel that those, there were people questioning his authenticity to be on that throne because it goes back to Pharez. And now Pharez, in a sense, was an illegitimate child. And there's an Old Testament law that says that after ten generations, then one can come into the place of worship. And so you see Pharez all the way down to David. Those are the ten generations affirming that David has the right to be king. David was perhaps the greatest king that Israel saw during the United kingdom for sure and then even in the divided kingdom there really is no other comparison to this man named David and David goes on to be a picture of a greater king and that king's name is Jesus and how just as we see that that David was a mighty king in his time period he, he was a man just like you and me and he had faults but he's he typifies a greater king who has no faults and that is Jesus Christ in fact when I went to Israel I went to David's tomb and there the Jewish people were praying towards that tune and, and bowing down. And in a sense, in my mind, as I was observing, it was as if they were worshiping David. But we know Scripture says there's a greater one than David. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus deserves our worship because he is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. He is God of Gods. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who ever will be. He is the great I Am. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come to the Father but by through him. How is God at work in the shadows? God is at work in the shadows by caring about the details of life. God is at work in the shadows by affirming David's right to be king. But then, you see, this book is far more than a love story about Boaz and Ruth. This book is far more than just a book affirming to us that David has the right to be king in Israel. You see, this book is about preservation. There's been times throughout the Old Testament canon where Satan was attacking the lineage of the Messiah. And it began back in Genesis chapter 3. And he began to do this. And, and in a sense, he was trying to do this in man's worst days in the context of the book of Judges. But this book goes further 
than that. Thirdly and finally, I want to share this thought with you. God is at work in the shadows by preserving the lineage of the Messiah. God is at work in the shadows by preserving the lineage of the Messiah. There's one thing that Satan has wanted to annihilate and stop ever since he fell from heaven in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And that is he is trying, he was trying to stamp out the existence of a coming Messiah. Because in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible affirms to us the very first prediction and prophecy of a future Messiah who would redeem lost humanity from their sins. And he began to try. And he was perhaps trying to do it here by trying to dissemble David's right to be king. But we know that, that later in the book of Matthew, that Herod will come on the scene and try to annihilate a baby boy. And his name was Jesus. I do find it interesting that, that so many times we overlook genealogies. We overlook places like Genesis chapter 5. We overlook the first 10 chapters of Chronicles because, hey, it's, it's boring to read. Let's just be honest. We overlook this chapter in Ruth, or at least the last few verses here, because it's the genealogy. And we're like, well, really, this has no point. Actually, it has a very good point, And it was in here for a specific reason. And then in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogical record of the Messiah. Two lineages. Most likely one from the father's side and one from the mother's side. Affirming to us. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the one who is predicted from Isaiah and Micah and all the other prophets who would come and give his life a ransom for many. In fact, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we read about a genealogy. And I'm not going to read this record for you. But I just want to read the very first verse. Because it's connected to Ruth chapter 4. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Check it out now. It says the son of who? It says the son of David. And then it says the son of Abraham. And then it goes in. Who is mentioned? The very last name in Ruth chapter 4. David, the first one beside Jesus Christ mentioned in, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 1 is David. There's a connection here in Ruth with Matthew chapter 1. And then the Bible says in verse number 17 that all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David unto the carrying away of Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away of Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. And then Matthew records the beautiful story of the birth of Christ. Now take your Bibles and turn over to Luke, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Beginning with verse number 21. It says... In verse 23 of, excuse me, of Luke chapter 3, it says, And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And then it goes into the genealogy 
But then check it out. Now look at verse number 31. It says, the very last name here, it says, which was the son of David. Then in verse 32, it says, which was the son of Jesse, which was the son of Obed, which was the son of Boaz. Going back here in Ruth chapter 4, it says, Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. You see, my friends, the book of Ruth has the Christmas story in it in a way that you may not see it if you skipped over the genealogies. And every detail from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, the final amen, from in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth unto even so come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. From the very beginning to the very ending, we see that God is at work orchestrating everything out for his good plan. And you, along with myself, we are not just accidents that have appeared into existence. We have a very specific purpose that God, you may not understand this, but God has his hand on your life and God has a purpose for your life. God is at work in the shadows. Will you let him be at work continually? You know, do you have any Christmas traditions? So many times every family has different ones. Maybe, maybe your tradition is you go out and you, you go and buy a real tree. And you do that every single year. And you bring it home. And you decorate that tree with lights and with ornaments and with a star at the very top. Or maybe your tradition is you go one time to Walmart and you buy that tree so you never have to buy a new one. And then you decorate that tree. Maybe your Christmas tradition is jamming out to all the music of this time of the year. And maybe you started on October the 1st, or October the 31st, or November the 1st, or maybe you haven't started yet. July, yes, Miss Nancy, all the way in July. Maybe your Christmas tradition is coming down on Christmas Eve and opening up one Christmas present, or maybe opening up the stocking as a family. Maybe your tradition is getting together with all of your family and having a, a nice time of, of fellowship and food and fun and Christmas exchange. Maybe yours is gathering around the television and watching your favorite Christmas movies. Or maybe it's watching all of the, maybe grabbing a, a cup of hot chocolate and grabbing a blanket and snuggling up by a fire and watching all of those sappy, same Hallmark Christmas movies that we can tell the plot is the same in all of them, but we still watch them because they're good. The greatest love story that was ever told is not between Ruth and Boaz, and it's not what you're going to see this time of the year in the Hallmark Channel. The greatest love story ever told is when Christ came wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger to die for you and for me. And throughout all of history, even in man's darkest days of judges, God was at work in the shadows. What's up, guys? Brian here again just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. 
Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.